It is Saturday, the 4th of September, 2021. Good morning. Here's a poem by Emily Dickinson. This is a poem uh, labeled Roman numeral 20 in a section called Time and Eternity uh, from a reprint of a 1924 edition of the uh, Complete Poems of Emily Dickinson. It had an introduction by... uh, her uh, niece, Martha Dickinson uh, Bianchi. So, um, this is it. The last night that she lived, it was a common night, except the dying. This to us made nature different. We noticed small things, things overlooked before, by this great light upon our minds, italicized as twere, that others could exist while she must finish quite, a jealousy for her arose so nearly infinite. We waited while she passed. It was a narrow time. Too jostled were our souls to speak. At length the notice came. She mentioned and forgot. Then lightly as a reed bent to the water, shivered scarce, consented, and was dead. And we we placed the hair and drew the head erect, and then in awful leisure was our faith to regulate. This is episode three of the uh, Conspiracy to Commit Poetry podcast. Uh, I hope it to be a a short um, episode because it's Saturday and uh, my wife and my daughter want to go to the park today and it's a beautiful uh, September morning here in Gaziantep, Turkey. Um. I thought to read Emily Dickinson uh, because a friend of mine, a photographer in America, uh, apparently his sister has passed away. She was uh, 39 years old. And so I, uh, I don't know, looked to all these poems about uh, women who have uh, died. And uh, I looked at uh, Edgar Allan Poe's Annabelle Lee, which is a little bit of a, a cliche, still a beautiful poem. But then I found this uh, Emily Dickinson poem, and I was thinking about my own daughter, who I've had a great week with. Uh, I've had a great week of quality time with my daughter, and and, uh, I only have one child. I uh, became a parent at age 42. This was uh, not in the cards, not in my plans, you know. Well, it was in the cards. You know, this is like... uh, drawing uh, the Queen of Hearts uh, late in a poker game, and you really got to have the hand or something, you know? Uh, I thought of Emily Dickinson this morning because uh, she's, you know, the the mother of the American lyric poem, these short poems that we really kind of think of in American English as, you know, what is poetry? And we you know, people sit down, they write a little short, rhymed, uh, morbid uh, lyric 
and Emily Dickinson sort of invented those. Um, when I was 14, 15 years old, uh, looking in anthologies, it was her poems that really grabbed me. And when I was sort of imitating models, I, I uh, tried to imitate the sort of things that she was writing and people who wrote like her, like, you know, Jim Morrison lyrics and door songs. I mean, uh, Emily Dickinson casts a very long shadow. Um, and of course, she's sort of a, uh, a feminist icon um, in the sense of these 19th century uh, women who uh, had to live under a, uh, an Anglo-Protestant uh, you know, under Anglo-Protestant I don't want to say oppression, but yeah, oppression. Uh, I was looking for constrictions, you know, uh, you know, living in this patriarchal world where she can't uh, make her own decisions. Uh, and of course she, she died a, uh, a spinster, uh, unmarried and, and all the sort of, all the things that go along with that in that Victorian 19th century Anglo American uh, world, you know, but it's 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 really interesting how she dealt with that in her art, you know. Um, and for me, who I'm not a woman and I'm not uh, living in 19th century America and I'm not a Protestant. My ancestors were not Protestant. Uh, they were, uh, you know, German, Irish, and uh, Croatian Catholics mostly, and. Uh, um, I think uh, we found out recently there's a, a, a German Jew in there who became uh, uh, Irish Catholic by marriage, I think. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, uh, we're, we're all Ellis Island people, you know, mostly. And uh, Emily Dickinson is this sort of mother of, uh, she gave birth to all these poets, you know. She is a mother of American poets, and 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 in that sense, she's sort of my my literary ancestor. Um, and and I know people criticize this sort of neat little narrative where you know American literature, American poetry has a, a mommy and a daddy, and the daddy is Walt Whitman, and the mommy is Emily Dickinson, and 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 uh, you know. I, so forgive me for for sort of adding to that. But um, again, I have a limited library here in Turkey. And so uh, when I thought, well, what books do I have to bring with me? Well, I had to bring uh, the complete Walt Whitman and I had to bring the complete Emily Dickinson, um, you know, in case I die and I have to be buried with books, you know, you will bury me with Leaves of Grass and you will bury me with Emily Dickinson uh, and, and these are my American Quran, you know, and I, I say that unironically, like, um, you know, in my culture and in my language, uh, there's, there's nothing like living in another country to make you connect with the things that really mean something in your own country. And, um, there's so many distractions in American life, you know, um, and pop culture and nonsense, just garbage, just P.T. Barnum hoopla nonsense. Uh, that's part of American life. Uh, it's louder and more nonsensical than ever. Um, 
So where's our, but we have a culture. It means something to be an American. When I'm, when I'm in Turkey, I feel like I'm an American. You know, uh, I'm not, I'm, I'm not looking for an identity. You know, when I'm in America, I'm looking for an identity. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, am I a, a, what's my religion? What's my race? You know, all this kind of American nonsense, but overseas, you know, no, nah, I'm an American and, um, I know where my American roots are and part of my American roots, uh, are in, in our literature and, uh, you know, there's, there's Emily Dickinson. Um, and I return to Emily Dickinson's poetry, um, you know, annually for, you know, I don't know, 40 years. Speaking of American hoopla and distraction and American culture um, and feminism, Emily Dickinson um, gave us all permission to speak of death and in uh, the bleakest terms, you know, not in some kind of... uh, high in the sky when you die kind of way and in, in, in a Pollyanna uh, Christian way um, and make no mistake I you know Emily Dickinson is is definitely of a Christian Protestant mind but her her expression of it is uh, useful you know I don't useful I don't know what kind of word that is uh her expression of of mortality through through a lens of uh, through a lens of of Anglo Protestant American culture is so uh, authentic. Uh, it feels real. It feels right. It doesn't feel like she's trying to paint over death and put in little poofy angel wings on it. You know, she stares death. She has so many great poems about death and it and, and as i'm reading this morning emily dickinson i read a number of poems where she's just sitting uh next to somebody dying and how how much is that the duty of um a woman living in a traditional society uh, you know where women wait they wait on the dead and they wait on the people eating and they wait on the on the men and they wait on the on the old women and they wait on the children and they wait and they wait and they wait and they <clears throat> never have their desires satisfied. Um, you know, so that tension is in, is in Emily Dickinson. It's interesting to me also that as a 14 year old boy, I, 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 I could connect with that feeling too, even though I really didn't understand it historically, culturally as a function of gender. Um, so Emily Dickinson uh, is the mother of the uh, American lyric, and she is the uh, she remains sort of this model for um, a distinctly American way to look uh, stare, you know, gimlet-eyed at uh, mortality. Uh, she does not wear the rose-colored glasses. And um, I don't know really what else more to say about that. I, I just uh, I really felt that poem again.
maybe I should read the poem a second time and we'll, we'll, we'll think more about it, huh? So again, poem 20 from the Time and Eternity section from the 1924, The Complete Poems of Emily Dickinson. The last night that she lived, it was a common night, except the dying. This to us made nature different. We noticed small things, things overlooked before, by this great light upon our minds. Italicize, as twere. That others could exist while she must finish quite. A jealousy for her arose, so nearly infinite. We waited while she passed. It was a narrow time, too jostled were our souls to speak. At length, the notice came. She mentioned and forgot. Then lightly as a reed, bent to the water, shivered scarce, consented, and was dead. And we, we placed the hair and drew the head erect, and then an awful leisure was our faith to regulate. Trying to fit this poem into uh, the discussions in episode one and two about having, you know, our feet planted firmly in the uh, muck and lava of of the earth, of the material world, and then the desire through uh, poetry, the arts, uh, and, and the spirit to leap up uh, into uh, into the seven heavens, as it were. You know, d- does this poem uh, fit into that uh, into that rubric, as it were? I hate that word rubric. It's um, um, does this poem fit into the pattern, or fit into uh, th- that theme of the 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 material, the earth, the f- feet in the earth, and the soul leaping, the spirit leaping into the uh, into the sublime. And I say, yes, it does. Um, I'm very much uh, struck by the lines, uh, the, last night she, the last night that she lived, it was a common night. It was just a regular old night. Except the dying. This to us made nature different. We noticed small things. So here are all the little details, the little material details of life. I heard a fly buzz when I died, if you know that very famous and well-anthologized Emily Dickinson poem. You know, Emily Dickinson is always noticing very small things in the presence of death. Um, I think it's important also to remember that in the 19th century, people just died all the time. Tuberculosis. Uh, go to any cemetery uh, uh, and, and go to the children's section of a cemetery. And what you notice, if the cemetery is very old, is a a large section of 19th and early 20th century child deaths. And then, you know, after 1950 or so, these really, um, you know, those sections get kind of small, you know, because infants don't die. Small children don't die all the time in, uh, in a world with modern medicine. Uh, but, uh, you know, in, in her time in the, in the mid 19th century, um, in America, and, and, and she came from a well-to-do family. I mean, she, it wasn't a matter of, of poverty relative to her society. It's just, you know, the rich and the poor died, uh, died often and miserably. Uh, maybe the poor died more often and more miserably, but 
Still, everyone shared this. Uh, it was a common night except the dying. This to us made nature different. We noticed the small things. And, of course, you know, we placed the hair, we drew the head erect, you know, we're looking at the body of the dead, we're looking at uh, the room, you know, uh, and, and she ends with our faith to regulate. And uh, I find that to be a very Dickensian sort of line, you know, she, she doesn't, she doesn't give you rainbows, uh, She's not a thirsty fish swimming in the, the, the water of God. Um, she dies uh, a very Calvinist death, Emily Dickinson, wondering uh, what's on the other side of that thing. Our faith to regulate, as if it were, you know, well, I, I, you know, I don't know. I'm, I don't take a lot of sol solace in that line, our faith to regulate. I guess it's open, you know. I guess it depends on your faith to regulate, to make regular, to make common again. Oh, I don't know. But uh, it was a kind of day where I, I woke up to the news of someone I don't know dying. And, of course, we're living in the, uh, in the, in the pandemic, and, and there's death all around with that. And uh, America and the Islamic world are watching events in Afghanistan, and uh, we are an hour away of an hour away here in uh, Gaziantep from Aleppo, Syria, and this city has uh, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of you know. I mean, a, a large chunk of the city of Aleppo moved here to Gaziantep. I live across the street from a block of of uh syrians and uh i hear the arabic language constantly here in a in a country that's hostile to the arabic language frankly uh at least among the uneducated people and uh you know uh, but you know it's not hard in this city to find someone that had their life and their family completely destroyed by the uh destruction of the city of aleppo syria uh a few years ago you know, we are living in a time where mortality, death, I forgot the hurricane in America, I'm forgetting the floods, the, the environmental crisis, and what do we, what do we use poetry for? I, I think we use poetry in part to learn how to die. Uh, what is a good death? Poetry can show us what a good death is or how to die or how to look at death. And, um, you know, dying and uh, processing death and mourning um, is very cultural. I think it's very specific to the culture you come from, the culture you're living in. Um, I do know that Americans in post-World War II we don't deal with death very well. Uh, we were not taught to die. Our culture does not teach us to die. Our culture teaches us to live forever, to mortgage towards an endless future that will be more prosperous than the past, and we are forever young. And there is no better example of the problem in that attitude 
than my parents' generation, the baby boomers who fed the whole, you know, their parents who had lived through the Depression and World War II shielded them from death. I understand that they did that. And, uh, and what the baby boomers produced was the greatest uh, period of prosperity, perhaps in the history of, of humankind. I think, I think that could be, economists could back that up. Uh, the downside to, to that is, uh, of the me, me, me generation is, uh, well, you do have to die and you do have to get old and man, I mean, uh, plastic surgery in the boomers, man, you know, the, they've become this sort of zombie generation that's lived longer than everybody. If you're a baby boomer listening to this, I'm so sorry. I'm not picking on you personally. Um, you know, because honestly, my generation, the, the, the Gen Xers were just little mini me, uh, boomers and, uh, uh, and any millennial or Gen A person will, or I don't know what these younger generations are. You know, we call them all millennials, but they're actually, you know, there's already like a couple of generations born after me. Um, so, so, uh, don't let me pick on the boomers. Uh, The Gen Xers, we're old now too. And, and we're just as, as uh, incapable of dealing with mortality and aging. We're not growing old gracefully, um, or many of us aren't. So um, I'm way off track here. Uh, I, I, I don't want to get into you know politics so much or popular cultural criticism I, I, on this podcast. I really want to come always back to poetry and the and 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 thinking and speaking and writing and poetry. Poems can teach us how to grow old and teach us how to die. Man, Emily Dickinson can show us how to die or how to look at it, you know, look at it cold. Uh, so uh, I will eventually get around to reading Walt Whitman, but if I start reading Walt Whitman poems on this thing, you know, every episode will be Walt Whitman. I kind of went crazy for Whitman for a lot of years, and I'm still crazy about Whitman, but um, I've, I've been on my roomie trip for a couple of years, so, um, you know, Whitman's sort of taken a, a, a back burner for a little bit, but uh, I was living in Philadelphia uh, last autumn and winter, and... Uh, that gave me an opportunity to visit Walt Whitman's grave with some friends. It's a mausoleum actually in Harlan, Harley cemetery in Camden, New Jersey over the, over the bridge from Philadelphia. And, uh, it was a wonderful trip to visit him. You know, Whitman, uh, was not a rich man when he died. He, he did own a little house that's still there in Camden. Um, it's a museum. The museum was closed when I went to go visit it. Um, and uh, a local man uh, told me all about what had changed around Whitman's house over the years as the city developed. And he was, I think he was a homeless man, but he knew the history. You know, he, he knew his city. Uh, Camden, New Jersey could absolutely use your tourist dollars. So go visit and, uh, you know, see one of America's uh, great, if struggling, cities. Uh and Whitman's, so, so you go to the cemetery and Whitman's uh, mausoleum is there and the gate is not closed. The gate is uh, by Whitman's uh, wish. The gate opens up and you could sit down. There, there's a chair in there and 
and you could sit down there with Whitman and he's, I think his brother's buried in there, maybe his sister, his mother. So there's another Whitman buried in there. Um, he was not married. Um, I, I also noticed when I came there that somebody had left uh, a tarot card with uh, the mage uh, at the, at the, you know, the foot of the doorway into the mausoleum, you know, and of course I brought a copy of leaves of grass and, and I went with a, a couple of writers and we, we read uh, some Whitman together there. It was a beautiful day. Uh, and then the clouds kind of uh, darkened. It was, I think it was October and uh, blew the remaining leaves off the trees and crows were flying and, uh, and I felt uh, okay about death, you know, and immortality. That's another thing. I mean, it's just, you know, death is not a thing. It's uh, death is, you know, being dead is not the problem. You know, it's it's the inability for us to deal with eternity. Um, and I think poets, some of the best poets, deal well with eternity. Um, I'll, I'll say that. And, and so I hope you've enjoyed my, uh, my reading of Emily Dickinson. Uh, the last night that she lived, I guess we could call it, uh, I'll say a few things about Dickinson's poems. You know, she did not publish much in her own lifetime. Uh, her descendants published some of her poems. And then in the 1920s, uh, which is to say about 40 years after her death, uh, you know, she became very popular in the academy, and she was recognized as someone that was writing very modern poetry before modern times. And uh, her, and and once she was widely published and anthologized, uh, the world has not looked back, and she's considered a major, major figure. Um, maybe like uh, my friend Dufu, uh, I, I like Emily Dickinson because she, she died in obscurity. Uh, and then in her death, she, uh, her, her sort of her life as a literary figure be began as her death. I'm reminded again of Walt Whitman, who his life's work, his poetry, uh, Leaves of Grass, he sometimes referred to as his immortal body. And uh, this brings me back to the idea of uh you know why do we write poetry and 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 the words you know maybe there is a futility in language as we discussed in the last episode but words poetry form a sort of immortal body poetic language can travel generation to generation and as long as there are people uh speaking human beings to speak poetry uh we have some temporal immortality in that, whether there's a heaven or not uh, in this world, we shall remain by our words. And that might be a good place for me to end. Um, I hope where whoever you are and wherever you are, you are well and uh, or well enough and uh, enjoy your life. <laughs>